I'm going to write an article about how a scam artist makes $60,000 a month on Kindle. And then to take it a step further, I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> What is up, everybody? This is Michael Zakond. I'm joined by my co-host, Simran Sandhu. And today, we have a very special guest who's very close to my heart. It is Sam Parr, none other. He's gotten quite famous on the internet lately. He is the founder of The Hustle, which sold to HubSpot for tens of millions of dollars. He is the host of the My First Million podcast, which has been a big inspiration for us here at Our Future and with this show. And he's recently started a private membership community called Hampton, which has also been immensely successful. So. We're not as interested in rich guys telling us about their past. We're more interested in rich guys taking us in the time machine and giving us kind of detailed growth hacks for like how they grew their business when they had no credibility, like no money. Like this is you moving to San Francisco. Like, you know, you were in, you know, selling hot dogs before that. You drove on a motorcycle, right? And you started this newsletter called called The Hustle. So Yeah, well, basically I lived in Nashville. I worked for that TV show American Pickers. And I saw like that guy, Mike Wolf. He's the skinny guy, the tall guy. He's a true entrepreneur, and I was like, oh, that's sick. My parents were entrepreneurs, but I never, like, looked up to them as I should have because they're your parents who don't really, like, think what they're doing is special. But I met this guy, and I was like, that's awesome. So I started a hot dog stand. Mm-hmm. I would kill it some days, make $1,000 in cash some days. Wow. Other days, it was, like, 100 bucks. Uh, we call it being hood rich because you just have, like, a wad of, like, $5 bills. Um, and then I moved. I, I, uh, Moved to San Francisco to join Airbnb. It didn't work out because I lied. I had a criminal record and I didn't admit it. And they fired me the day before I started. And then I started a roommate matching app, which was like Tinder for roommates, which is stupid. Obviously, it should have been Tinder for Tinder, right? You know, like, <laughs> um, but we did that for roommates and then sold that. And then I was like, all right, I got to start something new. I don't know what it's going to be. So I started an event called HustleCon and I made that popular by blogging. Which people today, like, I've had a bunch of, I've done some of these podcasts where, like, I go viral because I'm like, oh, I would just just start a blog. And then all the young people are like, who the hell reads no blogs? No one blogs anymore. It's nonsense. I think you that's, can still make a shit ton of money, I think bro. that's nonsense. Yeah. I think it's crazy. I think that blog, it's crazy how wrong that, like, a big, when I say blog, I mean, like, a newsletter, and then I'll write something on, like, a webpage. Um but the you get you make so much more money, and so I had a blog, and I still would blog, and I, and I still do blog. Um, but anyway, I that's what I, I I started that to make it popular. It got popular, and then I did it the um, the event a bunch of times, and I was like, the event part stinks. Let's just do this content thing. Yeah. So anyway, did the blog stuff, turned it into the hustle, mm-hmm. and that's how it happened. But like, I didn't have social media. When I started that stuff, I just would post it on Reddit and Hacker News and things like that. And uh, I think our first month at The Hustle, I think we had like 800,000 visitors to the website, mostly because of Reddit and Hacker News. And that shit still works. Well, I think you've talked a lot about this on MFM, right? Like just I've heard a lot about the story. But what I want to know is the big inflection point early on where it was maybe one conversation you had or someone who kind of changed your entire trajectory where it was like, hey, you're doing this Airbnb Tinder thing, but, you know, maybe you should look at conferences. How about like, how did the idea for HustleCon even come about? Like who pointed you in that direction? I met a guy who originally hosted the first HustleCon and he did it as like a hobby and it made like $5,000. And he was like, I'm not doing anything with this domain name. 
or this email list of like 500 people. Yeah. Do you want it? And I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I've never been to a conference, but yeah, I'll do that. So that's how the idea. So I didn't originally have the idea. Someone else did, but I kind of made it my uh, idea by changing it up. But what conversations did I have early on? Um, just like moving to San Francisco. So I started a book club. It was called the Anti-MBA. And I hosted a book club every week for two years. And the way it would work is I would pick a book once a month. We would read a quarter of the book every week. And I would get in these like experts on the book yeah. to come in and like lead a conversation. And eventually like two or 3,000 people would follow the discussions online like via an email list. And then I would have like 10 or 20 or 30 people. That's why I met, you know, you know, Sieva? Sieva Kaczynski? I subscribe to his newsletter. Yeah. So yeah. he runs like a PE firm worth like, I think they have $100 million in assets or in revenue. Yeah. He, I posted my book, my book, I, to create my book club, I posted ads on Craigslist. And he showed up to the first club meeting and that's, that's how we, awesome we became friends that when i became friends with like there's a bunch of people who are really wealthy in crypto who originally came to my book club like that's how i met most of my friends early on and so i would do this book club and i just met all these people that were doing cool shit and it was like basically the way i describe it is like you think of like this building or like this sure microphone and you're like that just has always been there and just always existed. But then I would meet these people who actually were making this stuff. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. I can make anything. And so I, like, yeah. I really had a lot of faith meeting a lot of these people that I can do anything I want. Mm -hmm. A big inflection was at HustleCon. I used to tell people to come. Like if their talk was at 3 o'clock, I'd be like, you got to be here at noon for mic check. There's no mic check. That's not a thing at a conference. Like, it just works, this right? This is the Sam Parr one-on-one -on -one they're getting. Yeah, I wanted to hang out backstage. And I remember being backstage. He's like, captive audience. <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't talk to them. I would listen because it would be me. Like, all right, one time it was Casey Neistat. It was the founder of ClassPass. It was the founder of WeWork. Um, oh, man. The founder of Away. It's so like Away yeah. Travel. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jen Rubio, and then like three of former people. I'm probably mixing up a couple of the years, but it was like also like the founder of The Athletic, and then like this guy who started Poshmark. You remember Poshmark? And like all these successful people. And we like, they were just, it was in a room just like this. And they were like complaining to each other about like, they'd be like, hey, are you guys raising funding? Oh, it's rough out there. Did you raise from this person? Man, it's so hard. Or I've got to fire this person, but I'm really afraid to. Or like they would just, so you're just like a fly on the wall. I'm a fly on the wall. Like I yeah. would like throw a question. I'd be like, hey, what are you guys doing about blank? Or like, how are you solving this problem? And they would just start having these That's conversations. Awesome. And I would just listen. And I'm like, oh, man, this is like so powerful. Like I remember like the founder of OkCupid. His name's Sam Yagen. He was the CEO of, I think, Match.com, which okay. is like a multi-billion dollar thing. He was so nervous to go on stage. And I like got him a bottle of water and he like snapped at me. And I was like, hey, man, it's cool to be nervous. Like you want to talk through this? Like. Uh, and he was like really nervous. And I remember like being able to be around all these like billionaire ish people. And I was like, they are not 10 times smarter than me. Some of them were, but most are not. But they're like 10 or 20 times more successful than I am. And I just remember being around these people constantly. And it gave <laughs> me a lot of like faith that I'm like, damn, like it's not the, the gap of success is, is huge, but the gap of ability is not significant it's funny because you still have that mindset like i think your kink in business is surrounding yourself with people who are more successful than you like you yeah. really get off on that like yeah, you're doing that with hampton you did that with hustle con yeah you've but bridged it, the divide it's kind of but it, um it's like the same thing with like um like sports like why is it that like a lot of really cool athletes or great athletes come from like one location uh there's definitely like some aspect of like they're just maybe more talented or like 
whatever it is, I don't know, but there's something about being around like greatness that rubs off on you. <laughs> and I find that to be very fascinating. So I like I, being around people who like do yeah. interesting stuff. I think what's cool about it is like the real value you provide is being a connector. You bring all these important, powerful people in a room together and just let them do their thing. Um, yeah, let well, the I conversation be very organic. You guys are that, right? You guys emailed me in 2020? Yeah. Maybe 20, 2020. Did you guys ever tell the story about on this? So basically, like, he had Michael at University of Michigan.edu <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Like, and, like, I remember doing a call with you, and you were in a dorm room, I think. Wait, can I tell you the actual story? What? <laughs> so, I, so I was doing a podcast before I started the short-form TikTok shit, and I wanted to have you on because I saw – I knew of the hustle. And like I saw you're on Twitter, I was like, this guy's fucking sick. It's like he's riding motorcycles, like he seems like kind of a badass. I also think that's the reason why your personal brand is as big as it is. Um, is because like you're not your typical Silicon Valley dude. Like people look back at that photo of you with like that little pot belly and the tank top in Nashville with that shitty ass sign. And it's like, yeah. dude, this guy's fucking weird and crazy. I'm, well, I it resonates too, though, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you're got a guy next door vibe. <laughs> Yeah, but I wanted you on my pod, so I said some crazy shit, you know, and you respond to that like it's your own language. It was some hustlery, I'm a young kid, I'm trying to meet people. It's like, oh, you know, that's your language. You did the same with HustleCon. And you're like, sounds cool. That's all you said. Sounds cool, period. And then you left your e your your number was in your email signature. Yeah. Anyways, flash, flash did forward. Did you start texting me? I did. I flash forward. So this is right when the hustle deal was closing. It hadn't yet closed. I was on my way to the Mojave Desert uh, for, for to, uh, sorry, Joshua Tree. And I was just obsessed at that time with how do I build a media company? Like I was doing a podcast like one-on-one -on -one, and I was like, this is so hard to grow. Like how do I build a media company that's more than just a person? Like I want to have a brand. And I would just li pretty much listen to every podcast that you'd been on and same with Austin and Alex. Uh, Cause I was so inspired to like make business fun, right? Like, like the hustle had. And I ended up just texting you and asking you questions. And I was like, hey, I want to do this. Like I want to build this big media company. And we ended up chatting a little bit and you wouldn't come on the pod because you were like, oh, like this deal is closing. I just like can't talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I was stressed at that point. Yeah, and then you know, fast forward to a stroke of luck when I just decided to listen to MFM one day. I was an OG listener, so I listened to MFM probably before like all these other mofos. Like literally, everyone is everyone is hopping on the train now. But like I was there in the beginning. You know, it's like funny. You know, like you're the guy they were first, and you're like, ah, oh, okay. You know, um, and. Uh, they had the viral cuts competition and that, you know, is that how we, me and Simi built the agency, right? Which was that first deal of like 5k, whoever makes us viral. I was like, let me turn that into 5k a month revenue. Right. And yeah. Basically we the listener, we had a contest where we said, just like anyone listening, make clips and post them on your handle. You can own it and just use this hashtag so we can track it. Yeah. And we will, we'll just randomly pick cool videos that we like and we'll give you five thousand dollars and you guys did it i think your videos got like 10 million views or something i remember the lavar ball uh, uh no that was later the, it was, the clip it was the subreddit the fat fire that one was a good one too. it was yeah. mr beast um with the uh squid game yeah so those popped like i just knew because i just i was in a position right like i was already working on short form video like i was surrounding myself with talented editors and the, it just like the light bulb went off as a young entrepreneur to be like okay like, I know these guys. I already have his phone number, so I know I can win the contest by just being like, hey, I'm winning, so no one will forget about me. And I knew a video editor who could do it. So it was like, I just had the right pieces in place. And it all goes back to just, like, getting started somehow. And, well, like, yeah, you'll be ready for an opportunity when it comes, right? But it's cool, like, uh, I'm not old, but I'm older than you guys. Um, but So I'm old enough now that I, I, I enjoy finding, like, the 20, 21, 22-year-old yeah. 
people. And I think it was the same thing when I started in Silicon Valley. It was like they, people were like, oh, you're young and you're getting yeah. after it. That's cool. We'll, uh, we'll give you a shot. But um, yeah, it's cool to like, I call it collecting people. I think I'm not like a religious person, but there's this cool line in the Bible where Jesus is trying to recruit Peter and Paul and they're fishermen. And he goes, I'm going to make you fisher of men. <laughs> and I remember like hearing that line. I was like, oh, that's sick. I'm going to be like, because I don't have that many <laughs> skills, but I can collect people. Yeah, you're really good at that. So I'm like, I'm just going to collect people and be a fisher of men and find interesting people. Yeah. Um, and that's usually how it's worked for a lot of the career. But when you're around those people, it like demystifies mm-hmm. achievement, whether it's yeah. sports or art or making money. I mean, well, me and Samir are in the same boat. Yeah. Like he was doing interviews on his pod, like before we even met, knew each other. Like he was talking to the CEO of Verizon and shit. I was talking to like, you know, the CEO of Chipotle and stuff. And it's just like, wow, like, these are just normal people like well, talk, the, chat on Zoom. The key was like, you're giving them a platform, right? Like, do they want to have yes. a conversation with a 30 for 30 minutes with the kid? Like they've got tons of other things to do. But if it's like, hey, it's a podcast and this is going to be distributed and you can make it sound cooler and bigger than what it is. Well, it's like, OK, well, I can see the, the ROI on doing something like this. Yeah. The way that I describe like that period of living in San Francisco for almost 10 years was like, I had bad eyesight when I went there, and then I ha- put eyeglasses on, and it's like, oh my god, the world is so clear. Like you yeah. understand, like how different things. Is are that built. a metaphor, or you actually had bad eyesight? Well, it's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor, and yeah. I I do wear glasses. Well, your <laughs> your your myopia was alcoholism, right? Uh, I like that was my my, my that was your that crutch. was my drug of choice. Yeah. Yes, but I um like being around these people. You're like, oh, this is how the world works. This is cool, and. You can. I'm like, I can do anything actually if if they can do it, and so it was very inspiring. Yeah. Um, well, I want to ask you, you you guys probably get crazy inbound. Like w- anytime we talk about how we were doing clips for you guys, people would just like look at us starry eyed because they're like, oh, yeah. you guys work with Sam and Sean. Like, so I imagine the well, kind we of, ignore everything. Yeah. Well, that's now, what I was gonna ask. I think the door's closed now. It's not closed. I mean, every once in a while someone yeah. gets through, but even then, like, because. The hustle when we sold it had close to two million subscribers, and every once in a while, my email would be in it. Like for example, yeah. a lot early on, the welcome email came from my personal email, and so you would just your inbox just is, has two or three hundred unread emails at any given point. And I also used to put my phone number out there. It's like a what like a, a young business person does. So like oh, like they'll tweet or like oh, I'm sorry, you're having a bad experience. Here's my phone number. Call me or whatever. You know, like that's like a, a cute thing to do. So my phone number was out there, and so I just get. They were two, calling. Yeah, so I just, <laughs> I just got by default, and and usually people just want something that helps them and not you, and so I just by default ignore everything. But yeah, we we ignore everything. So how do people cut through the noise? I mean, this is one story on on how we did it, but mm-hmm. like, you're getting a shit ton of inbound. What are some like interesting things you've seen or just crazy emails that you've gotten where it's like, okay, this kid has. Some chutzpah, like I'm gonna take a chance on them. Well, typically when they email you ideas on what they're going to do, that goes straight to junk. Um, it's far more interesting where it's like I've already done X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Here's the website, and here's the results. Uh, so like just really interesting and good results stick out. Mm-hmm. Um, when they ask like I'm willing to work for you for free, I'm like, man, now I gotta think about something for you to do. That's just too much work. I don't wanna do that. Yeah. I'd rather you just tell me what problem I need to solve and then actually give and me a sample of how it's yeah. solved. And I'll pay for it too. But like, uh, if you just like show me some type of a website that show, like is what you're thinking and then maybe I'll be interested. Um, 
the the hard part is uh, figuring out who to trust. So I mm. I have a joke, but it's not really a joke. Is I just say no new friends. Like <laughs> I just by default I don't trust you, and I don't want to be your friend. And so, <laughs> <laughs> figuring out how to like break through that is a challenge. I respect that about you though. Like once you actually like lock, lock on to someone, like you're super loyal for. Yeah, I'll be really loyal to you. But like by default, I'm like I I, I think you're lying to me. You're trying to sell me something, and I don't believe you. Yeah. And so you have to figure out how to like prove that you're a trustworthy person. So we've never worked together directly. What are your thoughts on second chances? Like, do you give people a pretty long leash in terms of like... Second chances? Yeah. Like, no. No. So it's like they fuck up, they're done. Yeah. I have a pretty pessimistic view, which isn't entirely true, but I default to it, which is people don't change. Uh, and so, mm. and I also believe that the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So like if you're late to meetings, I think you're sloppy. If you're, uh, so like, or if you if you lie to me one time, you're going to lie again. So, but people do change sometimes. I changed, uh, but most people don't. So I kind of default to it. So you're a skeptic by nature then? Yeah. And if you like, if I catch you lying, I think you're going to lie all the time. That's why you don't fuck with crypto and these NFTs. <laughs> I don't like, yeah, I don't like a lot of them. But I, I think that if you, but like a lot of really successful people, probably myself included, we have done like some shady things when we first start out on the internet. So like you can change, but uh, like I think if you are dishonest, once you will likely be dishonest so, often in the future. So like something that, you know, we all share is like we run, you know, with our future is running a viral media brand. You were doing the same with Hustle and you were very yeah, we weren't editorial. Like, like, we no, weren't but, crazy viral like I, you guys. I know, yeah. but we had the mecca, we had the, the short form platform to exist. You were getting viral on the internet. Um, how do you think about like twisting stories and headlines and stuff? Like you're really good at that. And that's something that I really enjoy doing. I believe these days you have to trick people into being educated. So how do you think about that and the ethics around that clickbait? I think that you want to tell the truth, but the best possible version of it. <laughs> um, I like that. I think that, so I think like a cool thing about storytelling is like you can change the, like for example, let's say that I want to tell you a story about like entertaining about someone told me something really funny and we're in a uh, car ride or something and like there's three people in the back and it's me in the front and then someone else in the driver's seat and they tell a story i'm not i don't need to like tell you like who was sitting in that car or i could even tell the story as if it was just me and this other person like having a private conversation that's not a meaningful like that although that's not like the whole truth that's not a meaningful difference in the story so i i, I think it's okay to do some things like that mm -hmm. um but uh i think that People, particularly your guys' age, have a pretty high bullshit detector. And the best way to circumvent that is to not bullshit. And so I try my hardest not to bullshit too much. But I think you can sensationalize the truth. Yeah. Uh, but I try my hardest not to, like, bullshit too much. Yeah. Because uh, I think that you lo you'll lose trust. But I think that you can do crazy shit to grab people's attention. The thing that with what, what is what is so clickbait means it's bait. What is bait? Bait is when you are tricking someone and and giving them something that is not true mm -hmm. or that is a fake thing. So like I'm tricking someone by you. I'm getting an animal to come over by like putting a fake duck out there in order yeah. to attract other ducks. Yeah. Just make sure that duck ain't fake. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like just whatever it is, it could be, it could be. It, well, if I use that analogy, it's like duck hunters. Yeah. Like it could be clicky. Duck dynasty. It could be clicky. Don't make it bait. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I can okay. get their attention, but I got to give them the goods, too. Okay. Well, it's okay. funny, too. Like, the whole fake it till you make it mentality. Like, if you can pull it off, everyone commends you. But as soon as you don't, you're, like, a fraud, right? There's, <laughs> yeah, like, no in-between. That's why, like, a lot of, like, um, entrepreneurs saw that Billy McFarlane thing. And he took it, the fire Festival guy, he took it too far. Uh, but every, a lot of people are like, damn, I've been there. Where, like, I was lying. Yeah. And I didn't think it was going to end up as a lie because I thought I could pull it off. But, uh he took it too far, but uh, a lot of people have been in that situation, I think. So I want to go back to the founding days of the hustle. Um, so you scaled it a lot through like some of these posts on Reddit news, hacker news. Yeah. Well, um, that, that, tell yeah. me some more growth, growth hacks for like growing audience onto the newsletter. So basically our first either 100 or 150,000 subscribers came in year one. And the way it worked is I would write these blog posts that I thought would like go quote viral or rank high in a particular subreddit. So for example, there was a subreddit called Soylent and I think it had 50 or 100,000 people. And I thought with a high likelihood that if I lived or if I had someone live on Soylent for 30 days, I'm like, I think that will rank high in that subreddit. Yeah. And also I think people who drink Soylent would consume our information. And so I was like, all right, great. Therefore, we're going to have someone live on Soylent for 30 days. I'm going to post it there in five other spots as well. And it's going to rank high. The very, and then they would, you know, we would get 500,000 or a million people coming to our website. And I had a really good pop-up that would grab people's attention. And let's say 3% of them or 30,000 people would subscribe to the hustle. That's awesome. And I could do that once a month. Um, another thing that we did, well, here's another article. The very first article we ever wrote. Have you read the article that we wrote years ago about Kindle? Mm-mm. So basically, I knew this guy named Patrick who had a thing where he would it started this way and then he became more legit. But basically, he would sort of plagiarize books on how to like sleep with women. And this guy, <laughs> this guy was what? like he like wasn't a like a player. Did like you read guy, them? No, but what he was it called like the gentleman's Well well, I don't remember even what they oh. were called, but if you Google the Hustle Kindle, you'll find it. But he would basically find books on how to like hook up with girls that ranked high in Kindle, and he would have someone in the Philippines sort of rewrite it so it, <laughs> it wasn't total plagiarism. And then he would get a clickbait-looking uh, title and image for the cover of the book, and then he would hire these people to, quote, buy it and review it. And I was like, this is horribly scammy and unethical, but it's wildly interesting. I'm going to write an article about how a scam artist makes $60,000 a month on Kindle. And then to take it a step further, I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were like, we did some uh, research and we we're like, which categories of Kindle have the highest liquidity? Meaning uh, I can rank like there's tons of buyers and it happened to be romance novels. Um, and so I was like, great, let's write this article about uh, Patrick and explain what he does and people are going to doubt us and then the next week like we're going to put in the article next week we're going to prove this is true by doing it subscribe here and then the next week we plagiarized in one week we did this <laughs> we plagiarized this book we called it Captivating Claire and we found that like there's this weird niche of like people who like want to have sex with military people there's also this weird like niche of romance novels of women who want to have sex with like werewolves I guess that's a thing with that movie. Oh. Isn't it called, like, what's that movie with that Patrick guy? Oh, isn't it uh, the one with uh, Michael J. Fox? I don't remember, but there's some movie where a vampire or a wolf. Oh, you're talking about Twilight, bro. Yeah, yeah, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's weird when you say it, but like there are movies like that. But anyway, we 
we we uh, plagiarized this book. We got these people in the Philippines to buy it and rank it, and then we released it, and we became like number one in a particular niche for romance novels. And we wrote about doing it, and it turns out the book that we so, and then we posted that in like Reddit.com slash like self publishing authors, and people got so mad at us, particularly like these stay at home moms who love this category of novels. They thought that we were mocking them. We weren't mocking them. We were just happened to choose that genre. <clears throat> And we were kind of making a point that like you shouldn't trust everything on Kindle and how it's kind of bullshit in a lot of cases to be a quote a bestseller and charge speaking fees. Yeah. And that became a hit. Turns out the book that we copied was owned by Harlequin. Do you know what Harlequin is? Publisher? Yeah. Have you heard of it? I've heard. I know they compete with. Random I hadn't House. even heard of it. They compete with Penguin. Dude, it's like the it's like a two thousand person like publishing company. It's like the third or fifth largest publisher in America. Yeah. And they emailed us and they're like, "We're gonna take you to court and sue you for making a mockery." <laughs> and and I like and for plagiarizing us. And I emailed them back and I was like, "I'm sorry, we were just making a point that had nothing to do with you." And they're like, "Look, we get it. We were just trying to scare you. Just write a post saying you're sorry for doing this and take the book off Amazon and, and it's all good." And so anyway, that first that was our very first post. The first week or two weeks we launched the hustle. Really? Yes. Because I think the moment I knew that me and Simi, like we had made it in media was when we got a defamation suit from a billionaire. Well, it, it, Did, does, it doesn't feel like you're making it at the time, but <laughs> if you but get means, that, that at least means for in the case of a media company, you're getting eyeballs. Yeah, exactly. And so we would do crazy stuff like that the first year. Like, for example, another thing was this was in 2016 when we launched. Uh, psychedelics weren't as popular, and I had a friend that would uh, um, take them a lot to like calm his nerves. And we wrote about how he bought them and how he took them in microdosing. That went viral, and we did crazy stuff like that. That's it, so vice. That's such a vice playbook. Yeah, and it worked. And that's how we got like our first hundred to one hundred fifty thousand subscribers. And we would just do crazy shit like that every week or so. I know Vice nearly bought you. Uh, we actually nearly were in some conversations with them as well. Uh oh, you gotta you, you gotta bleep out that name, Vice. I don't know if I'm in. Uh, well, maybe we could say. I don't know if I'm. I think out. you've said it publicly before. Have I? Yeah. yeah. Uh, they were interested in buying us, and uh, I'm very very happy we didn't do it because it was all gonna be stock, and that stock is worth you know. Not, it's worth Not zero. zero. Also, <laughs> it went to zero. the way that they <laughs> we'd all be unemployed. The way they organized their company was. Uh, very sloppy. We we didn't actually get that far down with them because it's like this is just a horrible culture fit. This is a bad fit, and I'm very happy we worked out with HubSpot. But most media companies are shit shows. I think, sure. I think a lot of media companies are actually like, it's it's kind of easy to get an acquisition in media because if you're the new new thing on the new platform, these older legacy companies have an immediate interest because like we were nobodies just making these videos and getting a lot of views, but. When we brought that storyline to like, we brought it to Forbes and we brought it to News Corp and we brought it to Vice and we brought it to Vox. Like, does News Corp the, give you guys a meeting? Those CEOs hit us back. We met with News Corp. Did they give you guys a meeting? You, by the well, way. do you know that they nearly? Uh, I don't know what I'm allowed to say, but uh, I would imagine so that that is true. Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> that's Rupert Murdoch 101. Yeah, um, selling to a media company is a bit of a challenge. It's just. You're on a grind. It's on a grind of like more eyeballs constantly. More eyeballs. And I I always thought when we sold, this was before I knew about HubSpot. In my head, and this was before we knew that WeWork wasn't what it, we thought it was, but I was like, a WeWork should buy us. I was like, a company that is selling yeah. something, that would be way better. Yep. And it's a, a significantly better place to work, I think. Uh, not always, but often. And 
then HubSpot called us and I was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. And so I would rather sell to a non, I think Coinbase had a blog post saying that they want their, if you Google like Coinbase medium, Brian, Brian Armstrong, the hustle, you'll see this article. They're like, this is a really cool strategy. We like this. And I think I prefer that, but, uh, both, both can work. I uh, think we would agree. Like we talk about this a lot. Like for us, I feel like it's harder to build a standalone media giant. Like you're better off being a supplemental piece yeah. to a different kind of company, whether it's D2C, SaaS, whatever. Yeah, it's more be fun. A media arm. Like if you go to like, you're, are you a car guy too? Not as much as him. So I'm a car person. I'm a car enthusiast. If you, you watch car content on YouTube, mm -hmm. dude, the best YouTube car content comes from not uh, all entirely, but some of the best comes from non, like, uh, like there's a, um, Car wow. You know what Car wow is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, they're like a marketplace for mm -hmm. cars. Their YouTube channel, I think, is the best. And then there's uh, like Haggerty. They sell insurance. Yeah. I'm about to they're, go to an event by Haggerty in, in Monterey Car Week in two weeks. Oh, really? They, I think they've got the best car stuff. Uh, and don't, doesn't Haggerty content. own? No, no. Hearst owns Bring a Trailer. Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Ahead. And Hearst is awesome. But I think some of the best car content comes from... Yep people who aren't in the media business because they have way more money to spend. And when yeah. you don't give a shit, you make yeah. better stuff. Yeah. And then I think it's easier to have a product that people love and then to build media around it than it is to have media and then build a product around it. I yeah. think the first one's significantly easier. And if you have that revenue uh, driver that is non-media stuff, to throw media on top of it is way easier. So and it's interesting you say that because I remember a tweet you just recently posted where it was, <laughs> bless you, um, where it was around... Media companies trying to build a data or tech product. Um, I think a, 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 a data product could work with media. But tech, you're not as bullish. No, I'm not. because So basically, there's a lot of media companies out there that want to create products. And it's not impossible. But I think that, A, doing more than one thing is very challenging, even when you're big. But, B, I think it's significantly more challenging to have a media team and then go out and build a tech product. It right. rarely has it happened. Sometimes it's been a comp, uh, attempted many times, but I think it's incredibly challenging uh, because the skill sets are just really different and the culture is really right. different. So you think it's a mismatch within the team itself? Like they're just not capable of building said tech product. Like, do you in think most you could, cases. do you think that you could bring in an experienced tech person and have them go develop this? It, it, it's a bit of a problem because you have competing interests. So at The Hustle, like, for example, we have this lady who works for us named Katie. I love Katie. K Katie Huff's her name. She was awesome. She was our best seller. There was a time where one of her clients, she probably booked like $2 million in revenue in one year. There was a time when one of her clients was this big name, big shot, and they advertised with us. And I said something dumb in the email, and they wanted to bail. I don't give a fuck about that advertiser. But I cared about her. Yeah. I didn't want her. She was going to lose money because that person was bailing. And I right. had to think like, okay, what do I care more about? Like the this ego and this concept of like, I'm going to say whatever the hell I want, which should be true, but I'm hurting her. And so that you're like at a conflicting interest there. And right. so it's the same way where if you have a limited amount of eyeballs or ad space, are you going to promote your own product? And that was the thing that we had a trends. We had trends. We had a subscription product. So there was competing interest there. Whereas I think if you're, let's say that you are tech or a product company, and then you want to, I don't know why you would, but let's say you want to sell advertising space, it's a little bit easier to like, like, hey, we have this extra stuff, this extra space that you could sell 
versus we only have this amount of space. It's all sold out because our ad sellers need to get their commission. Now we're going to promote our own thing. Now that hurts the ad sales and it hurts our salespeople. That is a little bit of a, that's a hard thing to pull off, I think. Yeah. Well, I, th I just think we're going to see a lot less like media companies get acquired. Like, I just think the media company is like a thing of the past. And like, I'm really proud that we were able to like do that because I grew up admiring you, Alex, Austin, and, and you, uh, you guys. And I wanted to do the same thing. And I did it on a, a much smaller scale. But I just think brands in media are just a thing of the past. Like, no longer are there going to be these like outlets and publishers, it's much more obviously like creators and stuff. I don't believe, I think that's too much of an absolute, like I, I don't like when people say like- Like a generalization. A generalization would say, yeah. this is the future. It's like, no, both can exist. Mm -hmm. I do think that some of these brands like a Hearst or a Fox, they're always going to exist and they're always gonna be, I don't know how big they'll be, but they'll always have a, be a fairly big business um, I think that like Meredith, you guys have you guys heard? You know what Meredith is? Yeah. Meredith, look up Meredith. It's uh, it's funny you don't know this because they make two billion dollars a year, I believe. They're based out of I think Minnesota. Oh, this is the magazines. Yeah, they're magazines. Yeah. They own Martha Stewart's shit. They I think they probably also own Oprah or O Magazine or worked with her. Uh, if you look, I'm sure they've done something with like Jessica Simpson. Like it's basically Middle America women read their stuff, mm -hmm. and like you're always going to find someone who can appeal to like th what you just said is a very tech coastal viewpoint but there's 400 350 million people in America there's a lot of room for everyone to Well you talked about that other guy right who does a airplane magazine and then uses it to sell hangar space Oh that's uh, a great one. Craig Fuller uh so this guy named Craig Fuller so he's one of the examples of people who have done what I said uh most people can't do he started, um, what's this thing called? Uh, Craig Fuller's his name, uh, Freight Waves. So Freight Waves. Oh, I it was the Freight Waves guy, but that was a media company no, but in listen, shipping. I know, but listen, it's the same guy who did both. Okay. So he did Freight Waves, which was basically the Bloomberg uh, playbook. So they created software. I think the software helps shipping companies figure out where the products are going. I don't remember exactly, but it's an enterprise software. And then to make that popular, he created, I think, originally a blog that did well, and then he's turned into a full-blown media company. And if you Google Freightwaves revenue, they yeah. reveal all the revenue, and it's something like thirty million in enterprise uh, software revenue, thirty million in like advertising and shit like that. His side project was that he bought, I think, Airplane.com or Pilot.com, like some legacy magazine, like a a blog, but also a, a, a hard magazine. And then he went and bought uh, a bunch of real estate in Tennessee, I believe. And he turned it into like a country club, but in the middle of the country club, instead of a golf course, it's a it's an airstrip. And then they have an airplane hangar. So if you're like an airplane enthusiast, you could spend like something like $400,000 and buy this nice home. And then you have your monthly dues. Instead of a golf course, you get access to this airstrip and you can store your plane there. And he's using the magazine to drive sales Bruh. to that thing. Now, I purposely said, it, I, or at least I hope I did, in most cases, I think starting with media and going to a product is impossible. There's a lot of examples of proving me wrong. I just like in most cases, that's true. But then you meet a guy like Craig and he can pull it off. Another one is Blockworks. Yeah. Uh, Blockworks is my started by my good buddy Jason. He's pulling it off. But there is definitely a difference between an information product of which Blockworks is selling 
and like a proper tech product. Yeah. Like I think an information product that has a tech component, there are carryovers. Yeah. Like a data, like a data company. There are carryovers, uh, I think. And the, the same team in the same culture probably could do both. I'm just saying in general, I'm making a generalization. Um, it's very challenging. Well, the freight wave story is funny. So we're in the process of working on a deal together because they have a massive podcast network. So do they? Yeah. Um, tons so of podcasts. Wild. And it's it's such a funny thing because when I was asking them about it, they were like, yeah, we just kind of look at this as a two-part business. It's like we have this tech infrastructure aspect and then the other half is media. Are they bootstrapped? They're not bootstrapped. They raised so, a shit ton of money. They did? Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're, I think they are, what's the phrase? Uh, an exception to the rule. Yeah. Um, some crazy, extraordinary people can pull it off. Well, I want to ask you, so... The biggest pro of building a media company is also the biggest con. And what I mean by that is there are virtually no barriers to entry in today. Like anyone can rip each other off. People have tried to do it with us. People have tried to do it with you guys. And done it successfully. Yeah, Yeah. sure. Um, So what I want to know is like other industries where you think a young person can go succeed in, especially if it's their first business. Let's take into account they're not some tech genius. They're not big software guys, they haven't been coding their whole life. So what are some low-lift things that they should be focusing on or emerging trends they can look at? Well, obviously content is there, but... Outside of media. Outside of content. um, I think one of the biggest regrets that I have, and it's not necessarily a regret regret because I don't don't think I'm built that way, but I think like learning a skill set like development or maybe even better, design. Design. Yeah, if you can learn design, I think you can crush it. Um, and so, like, I wish I had the ability. To, so most everything that I make on the Internet, I don't actually make it. I'm able to hire people to do it. I wish I had that ability to do it, and I could create yeah. a landing page that looks sick. To design a website as good as Hamptons or as good as Viral Cuts. Yeah, yeah. like, I don't yeah. have that ability. If I had that ability to do that, I could definitely cr- uh, make, like, a mock-up of what a software company could look like, and I could cold call people and get them interested and i think i could get pre-sales or at least yeah. enough interest that I, I i could use that to promise people i'll pay you eventually interesting that's a great uh, yeah that's, that's a, great a good point. idea I, I wish i had the ability to do design i don't i i can write which is maybe equally as important but if you could do design and or uh if, like even just some of these no code tools i can't even work webflow i don't have i, I don't even know how to do it it's interesting cuz you're like tapping into the creative part of your brain like i'm taking your course right now the copy that love actually love that shit but uh copythat.com yeah. i got to give it that's just like a little Plug thing it I out. on the side it, it, it's fun right yeah it's totally fun it was like make your writing sing i was like well duh like yeah. It makes a ton of sense, but you just don't think about it. I mean, I've had way. people come to me. They're like, I literally wrote out all your videos and like your stories by hand. Yeah. Because that's what Sam Parr said to try and learn. It works. The way it's very effective. that you I tell st- stories. I do it all the time. Yeah. It works. I still do it all the time. I, I'll write things out by hand. So basically for the listener, it's called copy work. Like in the 1700s, 1800s and up until like 1920 or so, it was a very common way of learning how to write. You just copy other people's stuff. It's the same way when you like do music, right? You don't typically write your own song right away you learn jingle bells and then you learn like some rock shit that you like and then maybe pop stuff and then eventually you're like oh i like this part this part this part then i can combine it and and you you see the patterns of what works Mm -hmm. and you make your own eventually the same way with writing so if you want to be a good comedy writer you can take like your favorite genre of comedy whether it's uh stand-up or movie scripts you can write it by hand you can do it with um 
Catcher in the Rye, whatever, if you want to learn how to be a novelist. Uh, it's, and you see the texture in it, and it's a really easy way to learn. Uh, I think it's the most effective way to learn. I, I know we've talked a lot about the, the cons of building a media company, as we just did, but just to go back to that, the biggest pro, like personal brand, I am blown away by the, the personal brands that you, Alex, and Austin have from doing Morning Brew and Hustle. Is it just because like those were outlets that everybody in the tech industry like read? Well, like your personal brand mismatches the the thing that you guys built. You mean like, like, like you have a you're more famous than a lot of billionaires, yeah, a lot of hundred yeah. million dollar guys. Like, Which, by the way, I would trade that fame for that. Success. Why, why, <laughs> uh, why do you give me the money? Baby. Why do you think there's such a mismatch between the personal brand and the, a few the, the business you worked on? A few things. One, I don't like. I don't want to like make this sound bigger than it is because ultimately newsletters is like a very tiny niche in a right. in a small niche. Uh, but we were like pioneers in that. We yeah. didn't invent it, but we helped pioneer it. Uh, so it was like us, the Skim Morning Brew. It was like a very popular thing, and we were like five years ahead of of where a lot of people were. Like um, when I pitched the hustle to someone, it was a, a CEO of a really popular media company. That I'll tell you afterward. You just definitely know who they are. They're multi billion dollars. He was like, this is a tiny idea, and it will never make more than a million dollars a year. And that's obviously nonsense. Uh, we sold early, but Morning Brew is now close to $100 million a year in sales. Uh, we definitely could have done that, too. So he was wrong. But a lot of people dismissed it. So the fact that we are pioneers in this little tiny niche, that is interesting. Number two, by default, media, to be successful, you need eyeballs. So that is one of the reasons why we're popular. And number three, it's just fucking cool. Like, people on the outside, even when I'm on the inside, I'm like, this is pretty dope. Like, this is awesome. Even though there's a lot of pain in the ass stuff, it's sick just sick. to make content. Media is awesome. And there's a reason why rich people, when they get really rich, Jeff Bezos wants to buy the Washington Post uh, because it's it's like, it's sexy and it's cool. And yeah. so a lot of, and not a lot of people have that skill set. Yeah. But here's the thing is because everyone literally can write or make a video. They think that they are good at it. And then they realize shit, this is actually hard. And so yeah. they, they're like, I, A, this is like a sexy thing that you're doing, even if the returns are smaller than some other industries. Yeah. It's sexy. I don't know how to do it. I wish I could, but I, and I want in because uh, mm -hmm. I think Dan Blazarian, you know, that uh, crazy dude, he's got the book and he's like, I'm rich and I'm famous and I can tell you that being famous gets me laid way more than being <laughs> And it's like uh, the same thing with like media, which is like even if it's like not as lucrative as some other things, it's yeah. definitely sexier. And so even the rich people admire it. And that's why I, me as a 20-year-old kid wanted to get into the industry. Yeah, it's yeah. like a lot of vanity. At it's play. like the rock star version of like our nerd World. It is the rock. Yeah, that's a great way to play. Uh, it. It's yeah. like it's cool, even though like the music. Well, it's also, the, the guy who owns the the, the also, label makes way more money. It's, it's, it's just because cool. all these tech guys don't understand distribution, and now they're like Messiah. You know. Yeah, and also most people, their second time starting a company, they realize that marketing and distribution is equally or more important as the product itself, and they're like, Oh my god, I wish I learned that skill set. Yep. I'm also curious about how you think about new opportunities, and what I mean by that is. You get your first win, and what I've seen is that people who have successfully started and exited a company or done very well with it, it almost feels like they're way more intentional about the second company they start. And one of the reasons is is that like they just don't want it to fail or they don't want it, you know, to have egg on their face, right? And so I think the way they look at new opportunities is way different. So what were some of the factors you thought about? Obviously, Hampton is well-primed to being this yeah. huge success. but So when I started The Hustle, my goal was to make $20 million after taxes by the age of 30. 
The reason I set that number was because I met someone who was really wealthy and they just told me that number is like, you're good. Uh, and so I just made it up. And so the second company that I started, I think that basically most people don't focus enough on doing one or two things really well. Instead, they spread themselves quite thin. My second company or my second big company, Hampton, it was more so like, I may or may not ever sell this, probably won't, but what can I start that can last like many decades, that can grow um, every year, more likely than not, but even if it doesn't grow, I would love it. Um, and it's in, you guys know what, mm. you know what Ikigai is? Have you heard of Ikigai? It's this like Japanese concept where there's like, imagine almost like a Venn diagram that looks like Olympic rings, where it's like what you're good at, what you love doing, what the world really wants, and what they're willing to pay for. And the goal is to find something right there in the in the middle. And that's like your mission. Because mm. if you have like something you love to do, but it doesn't make any money, that's just an expensive hobby, right? If you have like something that makes a lot of money, but you don't really enjoy doing, then that's just a, a shitty job. And so the goal is to find something right in the middle. And I remember after I sold the hustle, I took roughly two years, um, sometime between like six and 18 months. I forget the exact time. Um, but like I started Hampton about two years after I left the hustle. Um, or sold it and I was like just researching like crazy. I called it like I was scheming I was like I'm gonna research Like crazy. I'm gonna find something that's hopefully right in the middle of that Venn diagram um, And I wanted to like nail that because I know that if you find something that you really enjoy doing and is lucrative and all that It can last a long time and what you see I sold the hustle in year four so I barely saw it but in like the more you go if you do a good job of doing it things compound and like real value will happen like every decade or so. And so I was like, what can like compound over many years of time? And it's going to do that because A, it's a good business model. It's a product people want. I'm willing to do it for decades. And so I was really careful about that. And I just think that most people, they don't really focus. They're not, when you're just starting out, I think just get your fucking win as, as so uh, you, the you, win. you support what we did. And that well, like, I don't know if you define that as your win or not. I don't know how you defined if that what what it depends how you defined it. Um, but I think that like get some type of financial security, get that nut, and then I think it's I think that's an appropriate thing to do. It's just like, dude, whatever you can do to get your, your first win and have like some breathing room. Yeah, it's totally worth it. But then when you can after that, if you're able to think about what can last many 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 decades. Because a lot of times you can create a significant amount of value over 20 years, way more than five years. Yeah, but you're different than what I've seen other founders and your exited founders in the industry do. Like they're trying to spread themselves thin. They're trying to do a million things. I think that's a they're huge trying mistake. to be ultra leveraged. They're trying to do a VC fund. They're trying to find the next thing, big thing. You went all in on one idea that you thought was great, and I think that's different from what your peers of similar net worth and personal brand have done. I think they're wrong. I uh, uh, maybe. I mean, who am I to say? As long as they're happy, they're right. But if I had to make a bet that in 10 years, will they wish that they could have focused on one thing? I would think they would. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, But I don't know. It dep- I mean, some people have, like, one of my great friends, his name's Sahil Bloom, his lifestyle, he fucking loves his lifestyle. So he probably doesn't want to focus on one thing because he's happy. So in that regard, he's winning. He's made the right decision. Yeah, right. But for other people, like I think Austin and I, Austin Reef and I are very aligned where we're like, we want to start a real company that we actually work inside of, where we build a culture, where we actually hire people. I think that has a significant higher likelihood of lasting for a very long time. 
and money is not my main driver, but I think it will create a significant amount more uh, more value than right. all these other projects well, combined. It goes back to an interesting quote by like Stephen Schwartzman that I just read in his biography, which was small goals and big goals are equally hard to achieve. So you, you might as well shoot for something that your effort will be commensurate to the reward. Yeah, I, 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 and I, I agree with that. I, um, I think that what you have, I think that for some like really big, like I didn't want to raise VC because I didn't want that pressure. So like one could say like, well, I, my goal isn't big enough because I haven't raised venture capital or something like that. But we are lucky. We had money to self-fund it. But I, I, I think that I would add to his point, but he's more successful than me. So he's probably smarter. But uh, there's like this point of like, what lifestyle do you want? And mm. can you make all, the, all that align? Mm -hmm. Has your philosophy changed where it was you wanted your nut, right? So it was build to exit, right? Get, yeah. um, you know, some substantial capital at your disposal to now building to hold for forever, for a very, very long time. 100% uh, it has changed. Okay. And what, like, what caused that mental shift for you? Um, having money. Having money. Yeah. Cause it's, I know that at a baseline, I'm good. Uh, anything else is just upside. But I definitely don't necessarily need more to live a life that I want. I still want more just to prove myself that I'm capable. You know, just like when you're lifting weights, it's like you don't need to lift. You don't need to be able to bench 300 pounds. Why do you do it? It's just fun to, like, grow and improve. So I still have that aspect. But that, that it, it changed in that I saw success. And so I had the ability to be calmer and not freak out and not want it so much. You know, like when you're meeting a girl – Treat them mean, keep them keen. I, I knew, <laughs> I knew some like hot girl. She was one of my good friends. Her name is Carly, <laughs> and I was like, Carly, I want to meet more girls. What do I do? And she goes, You know, I just treat them mean and I keep them keen. Like the, le <laughs> the less I want them, the more yeah. they want me. It's like a little bit of truth with with money. It's like the less I care, the more easily it comes. Yeah, it's like uh, life principle, damn near. Yeah, um, and so I'm able to be offensive a lot more. Yeah, um, and I also like realized that. I'm friends with all these guys now who have like, you know, Austin's one of my close friends now. And like, I see like the difference of when we sold, I think the year we sold, we could have done about 20 in revenue. Um, and you know, he only sold part of the business and now they're still running it. And I don't, I don't know what they sold. Have they said publicly what the revenue is? No, I don't think so. I think last year they did. And it was 75 or something. And I'm like, Oh damn, we could have done that too. If I just, held on i don't regret selling but you like see like damn if you like things Where really the ceiling could yeah you like re things really compound if you do it right and so i've understood like a long-term perspective uh, a much longer term uh like timeline whereas early on you're like i agree you should have a shorter timeline just get it get it as as good as you can what about your mindset on competition and the reason why i ask is you and austin and alex like hated each other right and now no i, I didn't now hate you guys are like Best buddy. I didn't hate them personally. I think I told stories to myself to hate them. I always had a ton. It's like uh, just had some field. It's like fire. UFC fighters. Like you may, you may <laughs> like, you may dislike them. You may not, but you want to fucking kill them. Yeah, yeah. It was like that. It was like that type of vibe. I had a lot of respect, but I would, I would, I, if I could, I would crush them in any way I could, uh, well, or I would hurt them any way I could. Now I have a lot of love and respect for them because you both won. 
Yeah, we like, all no, want. No wonder... We're not competitors, and like I got to know them, and I realized we all have similar values. Yeah. Like, we're, we're... I mean, no wonder Brad Pitt and Leo are friends, right? Yeah, like, right. They were That's probably a... duking it out for roles, and now they're just like, "You're at the Oscars, I'm at the Oscars." That's an ambitious analogy, but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely blown it's up. It's probably a little, a little bit. healthier too. Like, you know you, what I mean? You know what I think is interesting about competition is like whenever you think you have a novel idea and like you're executing on it. Somebody else came to that conclusion independently in another part of the world. We didn't know each other. I didn't know that they, I think they launched before us. I had yeah. no idea who they were isn't for years. Funny? In. Like while, yeah. while Oppenheimer was, they were thinking about the nuclear bomb, the Russians, the Germans and the, the Russians, they were all, yeah. they're all working concurrently. It's like innovation happens at the same time in different locations with different Yeah, or lines. it's like the four minute mile, Roger Bannister, like a lot of people hadn't done it. And then Roger Bannister did it. And then that same year, four other guys it's did it. It's a crazy phenomenon. Uh, it's like the alternate like universe. Idea. Yeah. And then, like, once we knew that they existed and they knew we existed, I don't remember when that happened. We definitely, like, I always tease Austin. This isn't probably the truth, but I was like, every everything they've done that has worked, they stole from me. Uh, of course, we stole uh, an equal amount. Um, but, uh, yeah. Found like, inspiration. We'll yeah. use that. Yeah, like, we, we definitely <laughs> stole, like, the good parts and we learned. Uh, but we, we, we took different paths. They ended yeah. up launching tons of newsletters. We weren't going to. We were going to go... We we're going to be more verticalized and launch more stuff to a particular audience. Um, I think both would have worked fine. Um, but, yeah, they they killed it. And now they're one of my close friends. I, I love those guys. So I have a question for you about Hampton. You're talking about the longevity of this business, like decades. I think a lot of people joined Hampton to get an association with you because they're, like, in love with you and you're their hero. Like, you're so I big. Think, what happens when that fades? I think you're overestimating that. So I bet... Uh, most of the people heard about it through me because I've got a megaphone. Um, I interact with like, so we have many, many hundreds, soon thousands of members. I interact with like very few of them. So, and I'm not even the CEO of the company. I don't even make a lot of the major decisions. So I think you're overestimating my importance of that business. I am basically the TV channel where the ads are. The product is totally different. Okay. Uh, it, it is away from me. The reason I wanted to do Hampton was, have you guys heard of YPO? Yeah. Um, so that was created in the 50s, in the 1950s. Um, there's another company called Vistage that recently sold for multiple billions of dollars. That is a similar style of business. But, but for they're like old school. Like they've been around forever. So they launched in the 60s. Yeah. And they've sold like eight times or yeah. four times or something crazy. I I, uh, I was really fascinated with brands that could last many, 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 many decades. And I think that um, this style of company can, with like HubSpot and other software companies, they have to like innovate at a higher rate as in like AI came out. Okay. They have to like do that. They have to create that, uh, and integrate that in their product with, uh, a, a peer or a membership business or a, a community. It's a little bit less like where the platform is kind yeah. of insignificant compared to the value that you provide. And, Branding is really important, and that's why I wanted to create it. It's funny that the DNA behind Hustle is. By the way, so... have you seen our logo and like our colors and stuff? Yeah. The way that I came up with that, me and Joe did Rolex, right? We looked at old Rolex and old um, Porsche. Uh, Porsche ads, and yeah. so Hampton, it's British racing green because I love British racing. Great green. color. It's a classic car color. It's like oh, the old Jaguars were that. And Aston like, Martins. Yeah, yeah and Aston Martins. It's British racing. It's an old thing. The word Hampton, I, we came up with that because I used to live next to a street called Hampton Avenue. But I was like, that word sounds like it could last for, uh, you know. Yeah. I think of Michael Rubin's white party when I hear Hampton. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like an old thing. So we wanted to name it and have the look and feel of something that can last and be timeless. So like, timeless. have you ever looked at like, you know, what's funny is like uh, what I love doing is looking at like old men's fashion over the trailing hundred years. Yeah. Like the tuxedo has never changed. 
Like it's been mostly the same. Men's fashion in general has like been like pretty much similar for like a hundred plus years. And so I love like finding things where it's like been the same shit for like a hundred years because A, I, I'm just fascinated by that. And B, it's just easier if you just like kind of nailed some of that stuff. Like it's just simpler. Well, trends in history also just repeat too, right? Like you go from But I don't even clothing. want a trend. I want oh. something that was like always- Just timeless. Always timeless. Yeah. At least I try Like a Rolex, if you look at like some of the- some of the Rolexes, they've almost always been cool. Or like uh, an E-type Jaguar. Like that, <laughs> that has always been cool. And it will always be cool. You know what I'm saying? I'm, yeah. So I try to find things like that that will last a really long time because it's just easier. I, I know you think like that. But again, whenever there's a sexy, exciting launch, right? You look at Threads. You look at Clubhouse, right? Woo. Woo. Right? So how do you yeah, sustain? Yeah, but not all of them. Some how do you sustain? How do you sustain the difference between... I get to say I'm in Hampton because it's hot right now versus this is something I want to participate in for the next 10 years of my life. Well, first of all, uh, we might screw it up. So I, I don't know the answer yet because I haven't done it. Uh, but this, I think that you have to look at like, I think Amazon did this where they're like, what will customers always want? They're always going to want cheap prices, fast shipping, and a large select selection of stuff. So like, let's just build our business on top of that. For Hampton, it's like, well, what will people always want? They're always going to want to connect with like-minded people yeah. who are of high caliber, and they're always going to want it to be easy. They're always going to want accountability. They're always going to want to feel less alone. So what can I? How can, what can we make today that will uh, solve those problems? And then how can we innovate within that framework on a consistent basis to like always make people feel that way, where they always have a sense of community. They're always a little less lonely. Everyone's always of high caliber. So what we do now is when you, I think at Hampton, we've had five or 6,000 people apply. Um, we interview all the people that fit the criteria on paper. So that's like uh, a certain revenue threshold. If they ha don't have revenue, they have to have a certain amount of funding. Or if they're a new company, they have to at least have sold a company before. They can't be an asshole. They um, it needs to be digital first. And then we also prioritize some cities because it's a little bit easier when you have densities. So like we have those thresholds and then we interview them to see if they're a threshold, um, a culture fit. And Joe, my partner, watches every single interview and he's in charge of approving or not improve, uh, uh, approving them. And so we're keeping that like approval process super tight to make sure they're high caliber. And then tactically, I'm working on like, all right, how do you build communities so they always they can have 10 or 20,000 members but feel intimate? That's pretty challenging. We have the answer for that, or at least the hypothesis for it. And so we're, I'm working on that uh, now. But uh, yeah, it's, it's fucking hard. It keeps me up at night is how do you like uh, make a membership or a community last forever? But there's a lot of people who have done it. What's, what do you, you know what the best example is? Is fucking Catholic Church, right? That's 2,000 years old. Uh, like it's, 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 it's done pretty good, right? You have a lot of fun little yardsticks to measure this against, you know, the E-type and the Catholic Church. Yeah, I mean, the Catholic Church. It's ambitious, my guy. Or, like, look at <laughs> where you guys seem like it. I wasn't part of it, but you're, I'm sure you're part of a frat in Michigan, right? Yeah, yeah, we were both in frat. How old was that frat? How old was, is University of Michigan? How old is University of Michigan? I mean, yeah, know, the high school I went forever. to, St. Louis University High School, it was created in 1818. Yeah, so uh, you, really, like, you really went in on this concept of this should be something that lasts for decades. Yeah, it's just way easier. Yeah. Well, it's easier. in Hampton, too, you guys segment out by groups, right? So it's yeah, like... So the way it works is... Yeah. So what Hampton is, a lot of people call it a community. It's not exactly a community. It, that is a part of it, but that's not exactly what it is. So um, the way it works is I, I kind of call it like business group therapy. So you're uh, the founder of a company. You're looking at your watch. Is this boring? No, I'm just being cognizant. All right. The way it works is... Uh, <laughs> 
uh, you apply, you tell us about your company. Uh, we match you and put you in a group of eight people who have similar sized companies and styles of companies. That eight person core group, you meet with them once a month and we have an executive facilitator who leads that conversation. And that's where you talk about what's going on in your life and solve problems and you get intimate with each other. Then we have a digital community where you can talk to all the members. And then we have um, industry specific communities. So there's like software, media, whatever. And you could like post a question in there. And like, and that's the opportunity for me being in media. I could get up to someone who's worth like 100 million, 200 million in media. Or more. Craig Fuller is a community member. Got uh, he's in the media group. Yeah. Pomp is in the media group. So that's how I can access someone who's someone anyone can access like the top dogs in the community. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here's what I'm interested in. How does the caliber of the conversation change? And the insights that are discussed when you go from, say, someone who's still like on the come up, like they're doing well versus like truly they are like top of class, like they're killing it in their industries. Well, typically. So like Anon from CB Insights, um, I don't know what they've said publicly about revenue, but they're probably close to nine figures a year in revenue Sure. for enterprise uh, sales. So what's that worth? Five hundred to a billion dollars. Andrew Wilkinson's a member. Um, so that he has like a $600 million company. So what the, the guys who've got the, our average member has 25 million a year in, in revenue. So what, what does the $25 million a year want from the hundred million dollar a year person? They want to see like, what do my next steps look like? How should I think about this as I'm changing my organization, whatever. But the older guys or the more successful guys, what they want from the younger folks is like, what's the latest and greatest yeah trend like, that's what you that's uh, why you like hanging out with young people too. yeah so yeah. like it, it's a mutual it's a good trade or they're like uh like this guy who's got like this chrome plugin who's only doing a million years in sales he's growing like crazy through this particular ad channel or something like that and so that's like the the bigger companies are like well we have found what works and we're ex and we're going to exhaust that yeah. but we need to know like what else is happening how much have you noticed the restriction is usually like there's some mental block for someone getting to the next level versus like they just need more time. Usually it's the second one. They just need more time. Well, the mental block is like they have to have the answer right away. It's like, no, man. like Maybe you, like an ego thing. They're just like set in their ways. Well, a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times what got you to 20 million could probably with some minor changes will get you to 100 million. You just got to add like five or 10 years to it. Uh, like whatever's working, it's just like, yeah, just keep doing that. And then once that breaks, make a sometimes a big change, most of the time like a small to medium change, and, and you already know the answer. Um, and so that's one of the reasons Hampton exists is for like yeah, the 100 million a year person who could like kind of fill that into the $25 million a year person. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. You really are playing your infinite game with this company. You've professionalized those interactions you had at the 12, 12 o'clock mic check into a business. And I think... If you can find what lights you up and then professionalize that into a business, that's the infinite game, right? That's the ikigai thing. That's ikigai. Yeah, I talk yeah. about that shit all the time. And people yeah. think I just talk about it and they're like, no, dude, I but fucking live that. What I find is interesting is the ikigai was in The Hustle and it is in Hampton. And there's a lot of times between those I businesses. I screwed that up at The Hustle a little but bit. But there's, there's a lot of times between those businesses and that the skill sets you needed on The Hustle are now compounding with Hampton. And yeah. that you're doing this great blog and you're bringing these stories to life of these people and you're doing the personal brand type element of that stuff. So it's, yeah. it's almost like there's, there's almost like a very similar concept. Almost. Yeah, I'm just you're, packaging it differently. You're packaging we, it differently. We had this thing called Trends, which was cool, but it was yeah. $300 a year. And I was like, oh, I fucked it up. Because when I launched it, I was, 
I didn't have a lot of money. And I'm like, who pays for $30,000 a year subscriptions? And then I realized, oh, big companies do. <laughs> the work that we're doing now is like kind of similar to that. If I just packaged it differently, it would have killed it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's all like similar. It's just packaged differently and, and for a different customer. So you've been through, uh, obviously, on a much bigger extent as to like me and Simi, like we sold our business. How old are you guys now? 24, 23. 23, 24. Uh, you know, we're, we want to launch a new business after our time is done, um, you know, in our aqua hire. Uh, how would you encourage us to, to go about and like, I'm almost like envious of people who just stumble into their business idea without knowing they can launch a business. But once you know you can build and scale a business, it's like, I need to find an idea. And my biggest fear is that I, I pick an idea, we pick an idea that we're not truly passionate about and we're just doing it because it's hot or we can yeah, make money don't for do it. Yeah, that. I think that my advice or what I did and what I would do if I, if I was you is create like a notion doc of different categories of styles of companies and go and research them like crazy and go and interview the founders and be like, hey, you want to come on this podcast? Uh, I mean, that's what we did. I had you took, you got chief and the tiger guy. Yeah, and, like, like, they I, had no idea. I, you I were did it for there. everyone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, building your competitor. Yeah, well, then two weeks later, like, they find out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We're not competitors. So I, I, not I mean, yet. But not yet. Uh, uh, but I think what I would do is like make, first of all, like list out like the life that you want. Like, what's that life look like? What is success defined as? And you want to put like, it's this much money. It's this much in revenue. I work like this. I work with these types of people. Like, I think you should actually put that on pen and paper and like outline what you think is a desirable, like we're, what the life that you want. And then you like list out like, I, I, you, you start at top and then you just get a little bit lower. You're like, I think I like this industry. I think I like this business model. Here's 10 examples of the things that I think are interesting. And I would go and research those like crazy. I would spend a year doing it. I would call their, uh, I would call them. Like if you could, the founders call the employees. Yeah. Learn all about it. Yeah. And try to like get behind the scenes information to figure out, does that align with what I think I want? Cool. Um, and then all while doing this, you have a vague idea of where the opportunity is. But as you talk to those companies, as you talk, you could talk to their customers as well. You should. And you like that will start honing in on the opportunity. And then I think you should call a few more customers and feel like uh, if you could actually sell them to come to you, and, but don't actually do it. And it's like, all right, cool. I think I know the go to market strategy and what the offering is. Now, let me keep researching this other industry, this other industry, this other industry. And it's like, all right, I've done a pretty good job of analyzing everything out there. I think this is the one that we should go in on. Let's go all in on that for like three to six months and see what happens. Yeah. That's what I would do. Now, that is the playbook, I think, if you already have uh, – a, a, if you're like, I, I can't do anything for the next 6, 12, 18 months. I have a little bit of time and money. I want to do something that can last many, many decades. If you're just starting out, I'm like, whatever fucking works, just exactly run. But if I'm you, that's yeah. what I would do, which is yeah. like I kind of ha I have some experience. I, I know what my skill is. I kind of know how to do this. I would be very methodical about the, I call it plotting. You want to plot, plot. and scheme. I'm like, yeah. I'm plotting. I'm like, in order to like. Like, don't disturb me. I'm plotting. Yeah. I'm plotting. Like, yeah. this is, this is, I'm plotting what the plan, I'm making the plan right now. And that is what I think most people should do. And you, it's just like, you don't get married right away. I mean, sometimes that works, but you typically, you, you want to go on some dates. You want to see what's out there. Totally. Like, I think you need to plot. A lot of it. dating analogies in this podcast. Well, you know, I was a 21 year old who like couldn't, meeting girls so I, I learned how that shit worked uh but i think that like uh you need to like plot 
a very methodical great, way. Great insight. For and us. you like need to write all that shit out. And I think you literally should call them and meet them and figure that out. And you plot. And the plotting part is your job. Yeah. Be like, I'm not freaking out. I don't need the answer. I got. I call it worry time. Like right. from, from June to January, that's my plot plotting and worry time. I, 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 but I don't need the answer right now, though. Love yeah. It. No, I was going to say, so there's two things that stick out to me. It sounds like first, like figure out the end out outcome you want, right? You have to do that. And then work backwards. And then the second thing, and it's funny because I was talking to Eamon, um, who's the former CEO of AppSumo, and he said something similar, which is like, you want to date an industry. He's like, be very pragmatic. You look at 15 to 20 opportunities that you think could be interesting. And he's like, even just having a conversation with someone in the space. Exactly. He's like, you don't have to get all that deep, but he's just like, filter down. Like, that's what you want to do. And that sounds very that's similar what I think to what you would do. And then when you find the thing, you punch and you yeah, go fucking hard. Yeah, that intensity. That's when the intensity wraps, uh, like starts to dial down. And that's when it's like you're a, you're a sniper and you and you want to get after it and you say no to everything else. Yep. Yeah. Um, what about timing, though? Like if you have 18 months like us, like if you see something like do you believe that opportunities are more or less evergreen? Um, uh, do I believe opportunity? No, not some. Some are. Yeah, some. not all, but some. But that's but probably what you should. Nine, nine out of ten times, I don't think it matters if you're first. Yeah. Like whatever exists today, well, the opportunity will very likely also exist in 24 months. Mm -hmm. Like if you're talking, like let's say you're. I have no idea if this is true. Let's say it's AI. You don't got to freak out. You know what I'm saying? Like just. It, 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 if it if it if you can't. If it's not going to exist in 24 months, it's probably not a, an interesting concept. Yeah, that's a good good uh, mental framing. Are you moving to the uh, to the Midwest or New York? Where are you headed? When we got married, my wife was like, or when we first started dating, she was like, I'm from New York City. Uh, I have to live near my family eventually. So I agreed. So have you guys ever heard of Westport, Connecticut? I went there the other day. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's like a nice. lot of that's yeah. where like the hedge funds are, right? I'm gonna miss uh, I'm gonna miss Austin, man. I'm gonna miss uh, having you around and Austin's cool. Yeah, it's just so ugly here. I know. I miss beauty. I need some type of like physical inspiration. It's, it's, it's on a true. Daily it's true. It's quite ugly. It's so ugly. The, the city way... feels repetitive to me too. Like you do the same shit but all the time. I agree, but it is fun and it's easy to live here. Here I go to the UT Tower because that's where that famous shooting was. Charles Whitman. You know, uh, only you would be like obsessed uh, with that. 19, You're like feeling the wall. <laughs> well, because like, blood like spatter there. Here. Yeah. It's just like a historical thing. <laughs> you guys don't know Charles Whitman. Was that a weird that I knew who that was? He looks just like me. You know who that is? Uh-uh. It's like it was one of the uh, America's first mass shootings. It was like this guy who he had a tumor, but he looked exactly like me. If you guys are watching this, look at Charles Whitman. <laughs> uh, he like went it's up like to this the... tower and he like shot like 20 people. And it's just like famous because it was like it was like one of the periods where America sort of lost its innocence. It's weird. <laughs> like when you see a picture of him that he like looks like me uh, and now I live like next door to it. Here, look, check this out. Mike, what do you think? Side by side pictures. <laughs> I'll do it. Is this fucked up or what? Yeah, he looks a lot like you. <laughs> it's a little wild. Oh, but boy. you also look like a basic ass white dude. So there's a lot of guys. Look at that like guy. You, there's a lot of that guys. Be my in, cousin, man. A lot of guys. In you know, Kansas he kind of looked like, like uh, from Remember the Titans, uh, the linebacker. I forget what his name was. I don't know. A lot of I people... think you kind of look like the guy in uh, <laughs> Friday Night Lights, Landry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who that is. But... You also kind of look like Bart Simpson. <laughs> I look a little bit like Blake Griffin and a lot like Will Ferrell. That's that's what I say. Blake Griffin references aren't bad. 
No, I, that's a good one. The Will Ferrell one. We're more not. famous than them now. All right, everybody. Uh, thank you for listening to our future podcast. Sam, you're the man. Thanks for everything you've done for us, honestly. Like, Appreciate you. Well, whether it was being the arbiter between us and Morning Brew or connecting us with the HubSpot folk, uh, been invaluable to the journey. So, well, you guys got to chop this up and get me lots of views. We'll yeah. do. And always did. Always have. Always will. We're headed to New York City in a few weeks. If you want to be one of our other first in yeah. person interviews, give us a shout. We'd love Definitely. to have you. Absolutely. Cheers, everybody. Stay frosty. Stay frosty. Peace.